Welcome to the Prepared Podcast. Each week we feature honest conversations with operators, engineers, and designers about their work and careers. Recorded in Greenpoint, New York at Kickstarter offices. Um, okay, cool. We're rolling. Do you want to kick it off? Yeah, sure. Hey, I am Spencer Wright. And I'm Zach Dunham. And today we have Liz Corbin uh, with us. Liz, welcome. Hi. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, totally. We're we're here at Kickstarter recording and there is a... Uh, there's a conference going on outside, so the the music in the background you'll have to bear with us a little bit. We will uh, we will keep it interesting and engaging, so you do not notice this music that is going on in the background. Yeah, I'll Liz, be, you're on. Yeah, I'll yeah. be extra loud. Yeah, yeah, cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just f- fill every single silent space. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Liz, you come from the Institute of Making. Yeah, uh, I do. where you're a researcher. Tell us a little bit about what what you all do. Yeah. Um, the Institute of Making is a research lab uh, and facility based at University College London, which is in London, UK. And we've got the whole ground floor of the engineering department there. And what we chose to fill that space with is effectively a bunch of machines and then a ton of materials. Um, and we've done that really so that it can be a teaching facility Uh, but also a research facility and also just a place for play so people can kind of, one, get acquainted to making and production and materials and also kind of progress their own uh, methods and techniques and understanding of the two as they continue to use our space. And uh, so what kind of companies are these or or what kind of people are there? Is is this uh, startups? Is this students, researchers? What? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they're very often not companies uh, mm. that much. Where I think that's where we differ from, because I guess a lot of people in the States would kind of equate our space to a tech shop with a materials library in it. Um, but I think we're very different in the fact that we're not explicitly about entrepreneurialism or innovation. Uh, we're more about just people getting to get hands-on with tools and materials and just to have a go and a general kind of play around so, so, so what's the business model, I guess, then? Because because the in the U.S., I, yeah, not not to be too like wow. businessy or whatever. I, Straight I, to I, it. I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, because no, because in the U.S., we have accelerators and incub- like you know incubators are kind of you know city run or state run or something like that. Um, accelerators uh, are you know trying to make a return on some investment or something like that. Um, and then Tech Shop is a commercial organization where you pay membership fee. What's your yeah, how are you structured? Yeah, and we absolutely have all of those and more in the UK as well. We have the kind of whole gambit of different types of spaces and business models. We're uniquely different in the fact that we're a part of the university. So we're core funded in the same way as UCL Engineering is, as the chemistry lab is, as the library is. Uh, we're, we're core funded and supported by the university itself so that we can actually just kind of be able to get on and really push the limits of what we can do and what we can provide to our members. And our members are, we have um, just over 8,000 members now at the moment. And our space is not very big. Uh, so sometimes it gets a bit crazy in there. But they're mainly um, students And that's everything from an undergraduate in their first year engineering course to a PhD making a phantom heart valve from medical physics. A what? I know. (laughs) 
Um, we'll get into that in a minute. To, <laughs> um, to a visiting lecturer from uh, the Bartlett, which is our school of architecture, making transparent concrete, all the way up to just the general staff of UCL. So um, Sue, the woman that works in the engineering cafe, comes in in the evenings, and at the moment she's making a really lovely birdhouse. Uh, but it's kind of a whole mix. And then we also have a public following as well where we run a whole series of public events and workshops and masterclasses and evening series that anyone can come to. Uh, and that's in the evenings and on the weekends, and they're also for free. And so uh, so the person comes in with the, the project for the birdhouse and says, yeah, I think I know how you want to make this. And then you, as the materials expert, are like, well, have you thought about making it out of uh, these melted soap bottles? or Transparent or, yeah, concrete. Transparent concrete. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sometimes. Um, yeah, I guess the library itself is a really wonderful and amazing place. And it's an extremely rare thing, I think, um, I did a PhD on kind of open making and digital fabrication. So I spent uh, about three years going around the whole of the UK as well as a lot of Europe and the US looking at different spaces like ours, different make spaces, fab labs, tech shops. And I very rarely found others that had an explicitly material focus. Mm. And we don't even have a material focus. We have like a material infatuation. We're pretty obsessed. Um, so the library itself is a really amazing resource, really. And people use it in all sorts of different ways. Quite a lot of people will come in already with a project, with a set of criteria, or um, and whether that's mechanical properties or more kind of sensorial properties or aesthetic properties. Um, and then I'll carry them through they are either able to themselves or I can help them carry them through a kind of like material, possible material selection process. Mm -hmm. what, what does that look like? What um, yeah, what's, like? What's the, what is the intro to materials that you usually take people through? Yeah, it's, um, I guess the, so my favorite statistic at the moment is Mike Ashby, who's an absolute material hero uh, in the UK, but I think internationally as well. Recently, a couple years ago, identified that there's over 160,000 unique materials in the world at the moment, uh, which feels incomputable, right? Like if you're a hobbyist or um, a designer in your third year of school or even a material scientist that's been practicing for decades, mm -hmm. it's impossible to actually have a working knowledge of all of those different types of materials. And these are materials that are uh, being manufactured in the sense that you you could make this treehouse. I know that this is kind of an extreme example, but you could make that treehouse out of 160,000 different materials or these things that are uh, composites that that you through some... Uh, hackery, uh, for lack of a better word, could 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 make on your own in in a space like this. No, definitely not. I mean, it would be amazing to think that we could make, um, <laughs> like, we could process um, steel seven hundred four inside of FabLab. Like, that would be amazing. Oh, yeah. Oh, I guess I meant like, uh, yeah. How common are those? What does that curve look like of yeah. readily available materials of that? It's a long tail, probably, right? Yeah, yeah. it is, and. I think the commonality 
Um, and the familiarity of all these materials is something that I'm personally really passionate about, of actually trying to open that up far more. I mean, I trained as a designer and I work with a bunch of engineers and scientists. And what you begin to realize is that each one of us, as we've um, kind of been indoctrinated, I guess, in all of our dis different disciplines, we've all been um, kind of fed really particular material palettes. Uh, architects are the same. We're kind of, we develop a vocabulary of certain materials and a really kind of deep knowledge about quite a narrow field of materials, I would argue, for each discipline. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we are really passionate about doing is trying to really expand everyone's understanding of materials across the whole palette of possibilities at all scales. So from the micro to the macro, across the, um, like from the really up and coming biomaterials where people are making biopolymers from shrimp shells to the really everyday kind of historical uh, lineage of copper and bronze and whatnot is we're really trying to expand people's familiarity and exposure to all these different materials because I think it's far too limited. And what happens is that we all as practicing makers of any kind of discipline end up repeating and making uh, just kind of like repeating everyday's decisions in regards to materials. And we're not, I think it limits us in terms of really pushing the boundaries of what we're creating. This is the, um, to the man with the hammer, the whole world's a nail kind of thing, right? Like if you have access to injection molded plastic and print circuit boards, then probably going to make a software wrapped in plastic kind of thing, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think like for better or worse, I think um, expertise is something that we should all be celebrating, particularly now. Uh, and and we shouldn't be fearful of expertise, but I think we should be always trying to push beyond what we hold as assumptions of how things should be made, and from what materials, where, uh, and with what process. Mm -hmm. I mean, particularly now, we're at this really exciting point, both in regards to material innovation and development, but also technological uh, innovation. And I think we have so many endless potential possibilities of how to make things in really exciting new ways. And yeah, to be kind of explorers at that like very edge mm -hmm. of what is possible, what could be possible, what should be possible. Just to get a little concrete for a second, like what is a what is a household product or item or something that like people can think of while listening to the show right now um, that you are particularly excited about, either it's uh, uh, creativity or boundary pushing with the materials that it uses or a material that you might not um, expect to, to be, um, yeah, that that's product to be made up of? Um, I don't, I think actually the domestic realm is a really great place to always have these kinds of conversations because it's like immediately tangible and relevant to everyone. Um, and I think what could be kind of the best, in, the more interesting question would be to get everyone listening to this to just actually whatever room they're in, if they are home or even if they're in the office, to look around and first of all, try to uh, almost do like a categorization of all of the materials in the room, one, mm -hmm. right? To like recognize that everything in your room right now that you're touching mm -hmm. is actually made from a material. Wait, can, can, can we do this just like a, a real quick? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, do you want to lead us? 
Um, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we've got, we're in a kind of makeshift sound recording <laughs> studio. Makeshift. <laughs> so we have um, most of the walls. It's a concrete wall, but it's covered in kind of like semi-dense um, foam of Cone so like, shape. Yeah, we call it like egg crates or something egg like that. Crate? But it is, is that it's actually a US sound term? dampening material, yeah. probably. Yeah. 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 A packing blanket or a moving blanket. Then um, we've got a carpet, which is probably like a viscose base fiber. Uh, where else? That really lovely um, brass. I think it's brass, uh, if I'm getting the right. Yeah, tarnished brass lampshade is really lovely. I mean, a light bulb is glass and probably tungsten, unless it's like an eco-friendly um, glass. Uh, so so contrast that. So, so you, you brought a bunch of materials here with yeah. you. And one of the ones that I think is like just coolest from like a theoretical perspective is the, I would say nitinol. I think you're saying sure. nitinol. With your, okay. Uh, which is, well, tell us, it's a, it's a nickel alloy, right? Yeah, it's an alloy of nickel and titanium, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, so for people that are listening, we've got two different samples. One, which is in the form of a paperclip, and then one, which is actually a heart valve uh, stent. Um, and I think we'll probably take photos of these and yeah, we'll, we'll share them a bit. We'll, we'll definitely get yeah, some Yeah, but the whole, um, the nickname of nitinol is shape memory alloy. And that's because actually it can be programmed to remember a particular shape mm-hmm. and to kind of recoil into that shape given a particular st- stimulus. So a lot of the time it's electricity, a lot of the time it's heat, and that can be either by water or a blowtorch or whatnot. Um, and the way in which you it's made is through a process of annealing. So you give it a particular shape, you anneal it, you fire it in a kiln so that it is programmed to that shape, which means that... An- anneal it? Annealing, yeah. It's a heat treating process. Okay. Heat treating yeah. okay. um, under quite high temperatures. Okay. Um, which means that you can effectively, once it's fully cooled... You can bend and twist and uh, reshape that object in whatever way you want. And then once it's put under its stimulus, which it was programmed to recoil to, it will kind of spring back into its shape. So to, so to recap here, what you have in your hand is a piece of wire. Yes. It was formed as a straight piece of wire originally. It was rolled on a, on a spool or something like that. And then somebody bent it into a paperclip shape. Yeah. And then they put it in an oven. And that oven was brought up to a temperature and brought back down, which annealed the this wire into a paperclip shape. So now that wire has the memory of being a paperclip. Yes. And now what you are, I'm, I'm sitting here watching you uh, just just totally <laughs> mangle this paperclip. You know? uh, yeah, you know, turn it into uh, you know a ball and then back into a wire. Um, and now you're going to drop it into a cup of hot water. And because it has the memory of being a paperclip, it is going to kind of spring back literally into the shape of a paperclip. It will do once we get some hot water. <laughs> exactly. Wait, yeah. wait, what? Really? That will happen? Yes. You, you can yeah. mangle a paperclip and put it in hot water? Yeah, and because you realize to being a paperclip? Yeah. And so the way that it works is, so all metals are made from crystals, 
believe it or not. What are people doing with the bar with their silly little uh, straw trick where you put some uh, water on the paper? I mean, this is a much better bar <laughs> trick basically than the same much thing. Better yeah. bar trick. This is what? this is like this an is, instant friend maker. That's incredible. We Nine have to try out of my ten friends, I got through knits and all. <laughs> <laughs> um, the way that it works and the way that it's possible is that so all metals are made from crystals. Right, from crystals, and then those series of crystals are uh, put into uh, lattice structures, and those make crystalline structures and whatnot, and that's the kind of molecular uh, organization of a metal. Liz is waving her hands a bunch here, I want to I point out. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, so what's happening is that through the annealing process, you're actually training that crystalline structure to remember a particular alignment. Uh, so when you deform it in whatever way you choose and you give it that kind of trigger again, that structure will completely realign in the way it was initially taught. It's so, Surprisingly, yeah. you can actually, shape memory alloys can um, get amnesia. I love this. As well. <laughs> I was just about to say, look, this is so poetic and beautiful, these materials, but what? This is next level. Um, So if you bring it beyond its tipping point, its stimulus point, so this is obviously triggered to 60 degrees centigrade, right? Obviously. Water, obviously. (laughs) Um, So if you brought it to probably not 70, but, you know, 100 degrees centigrade, it would almost blow it out in a way. You could re-anneal, essentially, or something like that. You would just totally you would dissolve this whole system. You yeah. would dissolve its memory. It would gain amnesia, and it would just kind of remain in its deformed shape. Mm. And I know this personally because I've ruined so many knit and all uh, <laughs> samples at the library. Mm. I mean, our library, are, there's at least six jars of, like, Liz disasters. <laughs> <laughs> but you could also exploit that property, too, uh, in a design sense, right? Like, if you wanted to, say, re... Uh, in in, in in the same way in you know electronics or hard drive you'd be saving over some some memory mm. um are there yeah are there uh, and this is sort of a, a weird tension but like are there products that exploit that property well so this is this is kind of my question too which was you know we're looking around the room and we're looking at objects here and trying to figure out like how could we reimagine yeah yeah the the tungsten filament in the light bulb to be some other material mm. and so i've been aware of of nitinol nitinol for i don't know a couple of years whatever no, just, just say it casually. how you say it it doesn't need to be a it's tension. okay <laughs> like no yeah, one's going to come graceful out accent, you know i'm i'm trying to <laughs> yeah uh, but um and I, I cannot imagine using that anywhere around me. So I guess the, the question is, mm. A, like where, where is that used today? And or, and or how do you go about the process of rethinking? Yeah. yeah. Beyond magic trick paper clips. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> magic trick so is great. I've got um, one application of that now, which is a um, stent, a heart valve stent. So before, and I'll pass it around to you guys, and we'll take pictures of it. Um, so it's effectively, a, a, it looks like a very small, narrow, metallic tube. It's a, it's a Chinese finger trap, basically. Yeah, it looks like a very small yep. Chinese finger trap. It's a maybe an thing, inch, kind of. Yeah. An inch um, long. And so heart valve stents previously were made from a, a kind of biocompatible plastic. So if you are, uh, you have, 
um, a failing heart valve, what was happening before is they would effectively kind of implant this biocompatible plastic uh, polymer and it would stay stationary. It would effectively replace the entire muscle of your valve. Got it. uh, Which is kind of problematic because it accelerates the degradation of that valve. Now, a stent made of nitinol is really interesting because it's triggered to expand at a point where... So if your heart valve is failing and it's closing up, what's happening is that the blood is having blockages and your internal body temperature is heating up, right? Because there's just an immense amount of pressure in your system. And the stents can be programmed to be triggered by that temperature change and expand. So it re-regulates the flow of your blood. And once your body is re-regulated, the actual stent will kind of go back to a semi-more narrow size and kind of just lay dormant and actually enable your actual heart valve to retain its kind of muscular integrity or how much that is left to just function normally. So it's almost like an assistive device that can kind of like expand and contract, expand and contract in your body. Hmm. So that's an actual application. Got you. Um, And I guess one recognition of a lot of the materials that we have in our library. Um, And, yeah. Oh, so is this being used? Is this? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, this is in the body of many, many uh, hundreds of thousands of people in America. This one in particular is made by Johnson & Johnson. Okay. Plug to them to say thanks for giving it to us for free. (laughs) 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 I had to sign, like, almost 20 waivers saying that I wouldn't actually try to implant it in a human body. (laughs) It was amazing. Um, But one recognition to definitely say is that a lot of these, um, like, smart materials, uh, innovative materials, um, whatever we want to call them, whatever, like, key hashtag or cool term has recently come Disruptive materials, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, Materials of the future. 21st century materials. There's loads of words, but is that a lot of them are being made in engineering and material science labs, fair enough, because they kind of understand the molecular and atomic complexity of actually how a lot of these materials function, but they often remain in these closed silos of um, often just like medical or engineer, high-performance engineering-based applications, and I think that's kind of sad, actually. And it often means that um, these materials get pigeon-held outside of the more artistic and, um, like, design-based creative fields. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the, 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 the mission of your work at yeah. an Institute of Making, of, is taking these materials that are out of these, getting them outside the walls of these uh, research institutes that are maybe just doing medical tech and yeah, yeah 100% and, okay. because these materials are unbelievable I mean they I've been surrounded by them for four and a half years now and they still blow my mind like every day I'm fascinated by these materials and their possibilities are absolutely endless the problem is is that it's not I mean the problem is not trying to find novel applications that will naturally happen. The problem is is getting them in the hands of a diverse enough community of experts. Um, and also everyday citizens to kind of dream up what they could be used for, how they could be used to solve everyday problems like systemic social problems, technological <laughs> challenges, the whole gamut. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that we really proactively do at the Institute. We, that's why we hold open days so much. We work really actively with a, a kind of global community of designers and makers and tinkers and artists. We have a materials library um, database of our entire collection, and that's explicitly so that people can't, those people that aren't based in London or can't come to us regularly, we try to kind of create like a virtual hmm. connectivity and a virtual community of people to begin to think about how these things could be used. Hmm. So you're kind of the, the anti uh, Anish Kapoor with the Vantablack stuff, right? Is that, is that an appropriate metaphor? Do you, do you know the story? I don't know the story. Oh, uh, so, so this artist Anish Kapoor, I think his name is Anish Kapoor, right? Uh, are we going to kill you through, like, are you paranoid about pronunciation? Now? <laughs> 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 you uh, maybe. I, I also don't know, I don't know much about this story, but he, um, he purchased the exclusive rights to use a product called Vantablack for artistic purposes. Um, Vantablack is a paint made of carbon nanotubes, yeah. I think, um, which is uh, the most absorptive uh, paint on Earth, and so it creates these black, these objects that are blacker than black. They absorb all, like ninety nine point nine nine percent of all light, which makes them uh, have this appearance that's totally flat. And he, yeah, it turns three D objects into two D objects effectively. Yeah, visually, you can no longer see the depth of what you're looking at. And it merits saying that um, Vantablack came out of a competition, which I'm pretty sure it's NASA, but we can fact check me later. Um, runs every year on calling for the science and material-based community to develop the blackest black uh, paint or pigment. and it's, Wait, NASA does this every year? They're just like, stealth competition? Give us the blackest? I don't blackest know if of- it's every year. But yeah, it is. It's, it's a NASA-based competition where, because the idea is that um, I believe it's used in electronic microscopes so that actually you can see what they're trying to look at within an electronic microscope is something so infinitesimally small that the way in which to see it is you shoot a laser of light and you don't want to kind of diffuse or cloudy your ability to see that one particular thing by any other kind of light coming into the environment. So they want to always be innovating kind of these black uh, paints and inks and Mm. pigments to be able to absorb all other forms of light. And, and then amazing artists like Anish, An- Anish Kapoor, you're so right uncultured, <laughs> um, does really kind of amazing artistic responses of like painting, covering whole spheres uh, and three-dimensional objects. And then you, you feel like you're in a 2D space and it's really... Um, that sounds awesome. But, but he also, he acquired the, the exclusive rights to use Vantablack for artistic purposes. So no other artists are legally allowed <laughs> to use this substance, <laughs> um, which then apparently somebody else then acquired the pinkest pink paint or something like that. And, <laughs> and he dictated that that everyone could use it except for Anish Kapoor or something yeah. like that. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm yeah. more on the side of that person. Yeah, ditto, yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't know. And we, um, one of the best comments that I've ever received during giving a presentation was actually um, at, at Fab 13 mm-hmm. in Santiago, which was this summer. Um, and I was giving a whole presentation on the Institute and the Materials Library and how we are all about kind of like radical... 
disruption and democratization of materials knowledge mm-hmm. and really trying to totally open that up and expand the players in the game and access to materials information and materials themselves um, and how I was kind of on my uh, soapbox really pitching for people to to get behind my one woman one show band and this man um, who is American and runs a materials research facility in Amer- in the States, here in the States, down south said, um, yeah, I know you're all about kind of open materials knowledge, open materials information, opening access to innovative materials. And I just want to say, you know, you just have to wait and be patient because once these companies make money from these materials, enough of it, then they'll open them up and they'll become more accessible. I remember that comment and I, and I, the hair on the back of my neck yes, stood up as yes. well. And I was, yes, yeah. I and that. all I said was just no. Like, we're <laughs> not going to wait. And actually, we're just going to get on with uh, it on our own. You know, people can join in whenever they want. They can choose not to join in however often they want. But yes, like, we would have just uh, figured out we would have been celebrating the pinkest pink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> can you show us or talk about one of these other materials? Yeah. Can we do aerogel? Because yeah, I feel right. like that's like the other like super sexy material here. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sexy materials. We're really bringing is. sexy back to the materials community. <laughs> um, yeah. So aerogel is also a really cool material that um, was first developed in so I'm gonna let you guys touch it you just took a thing out of a jar and you it's can't see it really kind of visible but it yeah it looks like <laughs> translucent jello that you put in your hand Zach's face is also ama- your face is amazing right now because you're like a kid that feels like you're you're going to be allowed to do something just now that maybe isn't technically allowed. I'm gonna, I'm gonna eat it. I tell yeah, you. Yeah, I know. Exactly you look really naughty. And you. It looks. Yeah, yeah. It looks like a hologram of a thing that you're holding between your fingers. Yeah. It's so okay. I'll let you touch it, but no squeezing. Okay. The really weirdest thing I've found when people hold it is like this natural human inclination to want to squeeze it. Mm. So you've got to just reel yourself in. Understood. Okay. 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 So Aragel was. First, um, made in around 1930, and then actually NASA uh, kind of picked it up, refined it, and progressed it in the early 2000s. What it is, is in 2002, when NASA had it, it was deemed by the Guinness Book World of Records the lightest solid material in the world. Uh, Spencer's putting it in my hand. Okay. It's made from, it's 99 Point eight percent air, and the rest is uh, silicon. Silicon or silicon? Sorry, silicon. Silicone. Yes. Okay. Glass. Like, it's glass. Oh, oh, okay. Gotcha. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, so and is that so? If I were to squeeze it, I would cut myself, or um, yeah. I mean, it wouldn't feel great. It would feel kind of you wouldn't cut yourself, but it would feel raw hmm. for sure. Okay. And so this is a like a closed cell foam or something like that? What is the... Yeah, so it's quite a dense, uh, very small, very, very, very small cellular-based foam. Okay. It's made using an autoclave. Huh, okay. Um, using a what? An autoclave. What, what's that? An oven, basically, right? Okay. Like a very high-pressured oven, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and the coolest thing about... Um, what. So the coolest thing about aerogel is actually what it was initially invented to be used for. Mm-hmm. Do you guys know this? 
No. No. It was to collect stardust. What? Uh, <laughs> I feel like we're being really poetic and romantic. This is going to be the most romantic podcast of your series. Um, yeah, to collect stardust. Uh, what does that mean exactly? Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. okay, okay. So uh, in it's called, um, I think it was Wild 2, Wild 2, which was this comet that was kind of flying around the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, in, I believe, the whole project, it was a project called Stardust, started in 1999, but they actually deployed this, uh, trailing it behind uh, a spacecraft, and I think it was something like 2005, 2006. But anyway, what they did is they created this massive kind of hexagonal racket-like frame mm-hmm. and filled the entire thing with different panels of aerogel. And they trailed it behind a uh, spacecraft. They're trawling in space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I kid you not. Um, As the Wild 2 comet uh, was was in orbit. And what was happening is they wanted to collect interstellar uh, particulates and literally like comet and star dust. Hmm. What the unique design and engineering challenge was, is that these particles that were coming off Wild 2 were traveling six times the speed of a bullet as it's shot out of a rifle. Hmm. And they're teeny, teeny, tiny things. They're like smaller than a grain of sand, but they're traveling insanely fast. So They didn't really know how to capture them, so they had to create this kind of like foam-like, super-absorptive material hmm that could effectively, what was happening is that these particulates were f- whizzing by and they would get caught in the aerogel and the aerogel itself would slow them down initially, ultimately, so that they kind of just like bury themselves in the actual foam. Hmm. So the weirdest like egg drop test ever. Yes, kind, kind of, of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? So the, the, the aerogel then was very, very thick or, because you said before that it was, what, 90% air? Yeah. percent air. Okay. Because, I mean, if it was very thin, I mean, it's just just going to break through, like, one cellular wall. It's a a very, if you actually, I mean, for how how light it is, Mm -hmm. it's insanely strong. Hmm. Oh. It is a, I mean, that's 99.8% air, and you can definitely give it a good squeeze, and Mm -hmm. it won't shatter or break. I thought I couldn't squeeze it, though. Because (laughs) the look in your eyes, when I put it in your hands, I feared for its life. Um, So, yeah, definitely it was a relatively thick piece of material, but it is a very strong foam. We we will maybe link to this in the show notes or something like that. This this would be a good thing. We're going to link to all this. We're going to have to shoot a video of this. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Um, So then, so they've got the stardust... And then they bring it back down, and then how, how do you how do you get the stardust out of the aerogel? Um, some absolutely genius scientists mm. extract it from the aerogel and then study it under a microscope. That's a good Deus Ex Machina there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, unfortunately, I think we're about to get kicked out of this room, so we should probably um, shoot. wrap okay. up. Yeah, I'll share information of the other ones. I mean, we brought like self healing. Um, concrete and different kind of polymers made from waste and transparent concrete. Uh, yeah, so we can maybe share more information. Well, yeah, we'll uh, take some photos and videos and Perfect. maybe write this up in the, in the show notes. Yeah, um, let's do it. Um,
so yeah. So basically, this is in the encore. Uh, Spence tried to, 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 to stop us a minute ago. Don't but put this on me, man. I'm trying to put his foot down. Here. You yeah. put your foot down. I did put my foot down because we're, we're here in person with Liz, and I wanted to hear about more of these materials, and I thought that we just needed to stick around for another 10 or 15 more minutes. So we were just about to uh, stop, and you said self-healing concrete, and I'm just like, what the heck what is that? What the heck is that? Yeah. What the heck is that? So what the heck is that? Yeah, okay, so self-healing concrete. Um It's been around for a while now, but the whole thing about uh, material development, specifically in like really large scale architecture, takes ages to get through regulation and all that kind of stuff. So something that maybe was invented a decade ago is like still going under really rigorous experimentation. So this sample has come out of a lab from Germany uh, and... What it is, it's effectively, it's concrete that heals itself. And the re- why that's necessary, other than the fact that it's really cool, is the fact that um, pretty much all of our built environment, foundationally, but also internally, a lot of it is made from concrete, right? Like a significant amount of our built environment. And it's been around for, I oh, mean, yeah. the Romans yes. were using yes. forms of concrete. Yes, yeah, it okay. is at the absolute core of our material culture is humans um which is great i mean it's an absolutely amazing material however it's one of the biggest producers of co2 Mm. emissions it's yeah it's uh the concrete industry uh it's it's the portland cement industry right so concrete is cement aggregate and water um people incidentally people think that concrete dries it doesn't the water is actually consumed as part of the chemical reaction um this is why you see people spraying sidewalks that are uh that are curing. They're curing. And, yeah, yeah, so you'll actually cover it with plastic and make sure that the moisture doesn't escape. Um, uh, but yeah, so the Portland cement uh, industry, which originally was, I think, in Oregon, I think, but now it's um, like China. The amount of concrete China has made it's in the past te- decade is yeah. insane. And it produces like a, a massive amount of carbon dioxide, like more than our transportation yeah. industry does yeah, by yeah, a yeah. lot, I yeah. think. Yeah. I think. Um, so, I mean, whilst in many, many ways, at one end of the spectrum, there's a lot of really incredible innovations going on at the moment that's trying to develop whole new recipes for making concrete in the first place. This kind of tries to tackle it from a different angle, which is trying to prolong the life of concrete itself. So that actually, um, and it's not just a CO2 emissions issue, although that's really core to the narrative, but it's the idea that we're building cities at a rate of something that we've never seen before, right? There's some kind of statistic saying that we're going to have to build six whole new cities every year in order to meet the population that they're that the UN's projecting. It's unreal. Um, so, and what's happening within cities is that predominantly a lot of these in, uh, buildings that are made from concrete are having to be rebuilt, like maybe 30 years down the line, which is just... Uh, insane. Materially, environmentally, it's just incredible that these buildings are, their structural integrity is being compromised in such a short period of time. So what self-healing concrete's trying to do is effectively double and even in some cases triple the lifespan expectancy of concrete-based infrastructure. And the way that it's doing that, believe it or not, is poo. There was a there was an article about this in the Guardian a couple Mm. of months ago, right? About ash and 
isn't ash and feces or something like that, right? Something like that. And we were we were talking about this a little, there, like the Romans thing, right? With yeah, uh, mm-hmm, con- mm-hmm, like waterways mm-hmm. and yeah. okay, sorry. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so, so this particular sample works based off it's a uh, it's a standard concrete uh, mixture. The difference is is that it's also impregnated with a bacteria. Oh. Mm. So the bacteria itself is a synthetic version of a particular type of kind of prehistoric bacteria that they, that often uh, occupies the actual top of volcanoes, and that's where they were initially found. So this sample is impregnated with like uh, nanoscopic uh, bacteria, and also a food source for that bacteria, which is calcite, which is one of the main components of concrete in the first place, and also what these bacteria find really yummy. So what happens is that when a hairline uh, fracture or crack begins to grow within this concrete, uh, solid concrete sample, water seeps in. And it's the water that wakes this bacteria up. So it can lay dormant for a very long time, and it's the water that wakes it up. And bacteria kind of uh, mimic almost all forms of life, where effectively they wake up, they run around, they make love. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, when they're feeling really happy and tired, of course they're going to eat something. And like everyone else in this world, even women, uh, they poo after they eat. And when they're eating this calcite up, mm, it's like really delicious, everyone's running around, it's a great party, then they poo out effectively a bonding agent, which begins to uh, reseal that crack. And that's how poo's going to save the world. (laughs) (laughs) How do you... you test yeah yeah what, what, what's the speed at which this this occurs and uh so i imagine there's uh you know, if if a building um sort of withstands an earthquake and is mm. still standing and there's there's hairline fractures throughout the foundation is this material going to uh save that building from being demolished and and rebuilt from the ground up or is this uh yeah, what are the size of cracks and, and yeah, how quickly the really important thing to keep in mind is that when you are able to see a crack with your naked eye, mm-hmm. often it's, it's too far gone. Mm-hmm. You know, it's where okay. you're at a level of, uh, you're compromising the structural integrity so much that you're going to have to repair that whole gotcha. piece with new concrete or, you know, rebuild the structure itself. This is, also, this is, the key here is that it's addressing it almost at the microscopic scale. So cracks that we would never be able to see without a microscope mm-hmm. uh, is what's happened, is what's being healed by these, bacteria running around mm. having parties and pooing mm. um so i th- <laughs> i would take a big guess that a building that's withstand some kind of earthquake or, you know if it's a significant earthquake no this is not yeah not the solution but sure. it's definitely the solution for the everyday kind of uh movement and uh mm-hmm. life of building mm-hmm. self-healing concrete self-healing concrete <laughs> <laughs> it's good, right? Um, other stuff that I think, I mean, one other thing that we are, I don't know, I'll, I'll show you another piece of concrete, um, and you can. So this is something that's being called transparent concrete. 
which is effectively the impregnation of optical fibers into concrete slabs. Hmm. And it's a lot less translucent than the than the aerogel over there. <laughs> this is definitely a solid object. But oh, yeah. okay, this is taking her phone light and shining it from behind the uh, the object, which oh, is now no. showing. Friends, hold this. Okay. And it looks I like a crystal a that's light. being illuminated now. Can you see my hand? Yeah. Okay. So maybe it was just the lighting a little bit. Yeah. I mean, so it's not obviously transparent in any way, shape, or form. I mean, arguably, the the whole of the slab is not transparent at all. It's more about the innovation here is the um, the light diffusion through mm-hmm. a, a very, very solid material. And this would be like uh, in New York, particularly in Soho, you see those uh, glass prisms that are yes. embedded in the yes. sidewalk that allow for the, the basement uh, under the street so to So this is exactly light. it, yeah. Yep. So um, first and foremost, it's like just really beautiful, right? Yeah, so you awesome. can imagine it being used in a whole lot of um, aesthetic-based mm-hmm. architectural uh, applications like really posh lobbies mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. But more importantly is exactly what you're saying. So this was developed by... Um, an architectural practice specifically based on the response of increased urbanization. So the UN's projecting something like 70% of the global population is going to be living in cities in the near future. And what's going to happen is that, yeah, we're going to keep building up, but we're also going to definitely have to keep building down. So this is to improve the lives of more people, essentially. Yeah, effectively. People like us that definitely won't be able to afford to live anywhere else other than sub-ground. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the idea is, is that if we're all going to be living, um, I mean, if some of us really probably in the near future, we will be living uh, in sub-ground-based dwellings, is that access to light Access to daylight, natural daylight, is so immensely important to our physical, emotional, social well-being. Yeah, wait, 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 you're saying, uh, hold on, back up. Most okay. of us are going to okay, be living okay, okay. in sub-ground no, 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 dwellings. No, no, no. I mean, I definitely will. <laughs> the, the, the plebes will, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, uh, maybe it's going to be the cool new hipster flat. You okay. know, at the moment, we all think it's really cool to live in like Clinton Hill and maybe, <laughs> uh, yeah, basement flats is going to be the new thing. Like the Friends version of 2035 is going to be them living in a basement flat. Translucent so, concrete, aerogel beds. Yes, 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 yes. I like so, that. So this material is anisotropic, right? It has, uh, it's it's different in one orientation than it is in the mm. others because the, 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 uh, the optical fibers that are allowing light transmission are only go one way through and the And that's sample. why, I mean, that's fundamentally, that's the technology of optical fibers, right? Mm-hmm. It's that that's the fact that they are pure tunnels of light is yep. what makes them, I mean, their main uh, application is uh, well, optical c- communication. fibers. Yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. yeah. for that exact yeah. reason. From, to go from point um, A to point B. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that kind of almost perfect channeling of light Mm-hmm. In one direction is why they're very good for telecommunications, but they're also very good for this application as well as it's the kind of, it's the pure harnessing of light and redirecting it in, uh, into a different mm-hmm. environment, mm-hmm. really. Well, I think we have time for one more Wait, m- then I want to talk about okay, this one. Okay, okay, this one. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so Zach um, is holding up uh, a, a paintbrush. A paintbrush. Made of human hair. Oh, 
That is very it's like he's dropping the paintbrush. <laughs> real, very real human hair. Touch it; it's okay. It's really soft and plush, isn't it? It yeah. It's this is also like a foot long too. Like yeah. it's a it's like a lock of hair. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. It's yeah. beautiful. Um, so one of the things in the library that we're really constantly engaging with is kind of emergent dialogues that are really particularly significant, we think, like material issues for society. And one of those is uh, the recognition of increasing material scarcity, but also the fact that we actually don't make very good use of locally abundant materials. Uh, and I think as well as, so I've also brought some Smile Plastics, which I think we're going to run out of time to talk about, but Smile Plastics is an amazing company kind of trying to um, recapture waste material and make it into these absolutely, reprocess it into these beautiful new materials again that uh, are so beautiful that we want to use them in our kitchens and our homes and whatnot. And I think when you think about uh, locally abundant material stock, and the kind of recapturing and the processing of that kind of material, sometimes waste material most often, you do think about HDPE, PET, uh, yogurt pots maybe. But we, what we don't think about is stuff like hair. Are people making things with hair? They definitely should be. So <laughs> is my argument. <laughs> so fun fact, the UK produces 14 a uh, million pounds of hair waste a year. This is people going to get their hair cut and, their, and their, uh, the barber just putting it in the trash. Yeah, so, yeah, okay. yeah. And like lots of, I mean, different, yeah, like shaving okay. and all that yep. kind of stuff. Okay. Um, and hair is actually an amazing material. It's extremely strong for its uh, width. Um, it's very absorptive, particularly of things like oil. Hmm. rather than water. So an amazing paper came out a couple of years ago postulating the use of hair in oil spill uh, remediation of saying, well, what you could do is you can make just mats of human hair and it would soak up all the, wa the oil but leave the water. Hmm. So really kind of ingenious. It also turns out that hair is great for some uh, the fertilization of some architectural crops. It has been used for suturing materials. Uh, wait, meaning like a stitches? Yes. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yes. So I think it's... Biocompatible, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, I think, I, again, one of the things we're trying to think about is um, creating a future that is far more conscious of the environmental impacts of what the products that we use and the innovations that we come up with, particularly for us in regards to material use and also material waste, and to begin to see uh, kind of all things as materials and just start postulate, postulating what is locally available, what is regenerative material stock, how could we leverage that uh, and use it? And I think hair. <laughs> hair. The future is hair. I think that's a great place to leave okay. it. Okay. <laughs> 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 On that note. Thank you again so much. Where can people find yes. you or the library? Yes, or the yes, institute? yes. Yeah. Yes, so the Institute of Making is in London. It's at UCL, which is right by King's Cross. Uh, our website, we can, all of our contact details can be found on our website, which is instituteofmaking.org.uk. I'm on there. 
Uh, I my email address is literally what I'm about, so it's materials at instituteofmaking.org.uk, and anyone can kind of get in touch with me. I'm also on Twitter, uh, which is underscore e Corbin, I think, mm. if I remember it correctly. So yeah, please get in touch. Also, surf our website because we've got the materials library database, which has like beautiful photographs, videos audio, amazing descriptions of each one of our materials, and also kind of it's got a live blog post of the really cool projects that our members are doing in our space uh, with instructions and all that kind of stuff. Awesome. Thank you again so much for joining us. Yeah, 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 no problem. Thanks for the encore. Of, of yes. course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> I'm to have an encore.